0: Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be spending most of 2016 in the book of 1 Corinthians. and This morning we will begin with the first nine verses of chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 9. Please give your attention to God's holy, powerful, transforming, inerrant word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that the Powerball lottery drawing is over. I was getting really, really tired of hearing about how everybody would spend 1.6 billion dollars if they had won the lottery. I wouldn't ever play the lottery, but it is interesting how daydreaming about spending 1.6 billion dollars will reveal you a lot about your heart. A lot about your soul. I would hope, I would hope that if anybody gave me $1.6 billion to spend, that I would make a very significant gift to the Trellis Fund at Oakwood. <laughs> and then I would use some of the leftover to fund missionaries and church planters in key strategic places around the globe. And then I'd spend some of the leftover from that on getting the Bible and good, solid, theologically sound Christian literature into the hands of needy churches, wherever they may be, and training people to walk as disciples in Christ. That's how I hope that I would use the money. And if I had anything left over, I would build a Dunkin' Donuts on North Atherton Street. But besides revealing your heart, there's nothing good about that kind of speculation, really. First of all, it's a waste of time. God gives us so little time on this face of the planet. It's a waste of time to speculate about how you would spend $1.6 billion. One statistic I heard, I heard a lot of these, but one statistic, my favorite one I heard this week, of the odds of winning that $1.6 billion in the Powerball lottery your chances of being killed by a pig are 65,000% greater than your chances of winning that lottery. So first of all, it's a waste of time. Secondly, it's really harmful to your soul. It really is. The problem with daydreaming about that kind of thing is that it breeds discontentment. It makes you spend your, your really to focus on what you don't have instead of what God has so graciously provided to you. And there's a great danger in focusing on what you don't have. That kind of thinking can infect churches too. As most of you that know that have been with us for any length of time, we've been spending a lot of time over the last few years analyzing our space needs here at Oakwood realizing that we've outgrown, we as the vine, with Christ the vine, we the branches, that we have outgrown the trellis upon which we've been growing, and we need a bigger trellis, or we need another trellis, or whatever that solution might be. And so we've been talking about and analyzing what we don't have and what we need to do ministry, and there's a, the same kind of danger in that, that I know I've had to fight, and I'm sure many of you have had to fight too. This mindset that always says, if only we had blank." then we can make a big impact for the kingdom of God. And it's amazing how much that kind of thinking permeates even the best of churches. If only we had this, then we would be able to really make an impact on State College for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, as we begin this study of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that the first century church in Corinth was a pretty broken and apparently needy church. Like State College, we saw this a couple weeks ago when we looked at Paul's ministry in Corinth as it's recorded in Acts 18. We saw that State College is like Corinth, and Corinth is like State College in the sense that it was a strategic location for the church to be in order to spread the gospel to the civilized world. I mean, I love the increasing diversity here in State College and here at Oakwood as we have people coming from all over the world here and then going back out into all the world. What a great opportunity for the gospel. And Paul recognized that Corinth was like that because Corinth was one of the most visited cities in the Roman Empire in that day. It was the capital of one section of what we now know as Greece. And more importantly, it was between two very prominent ports. And so trade that went from every part of the known civilized world went through Corinth. And therefore, as you know, in any great trade city it was a melting pot of cultures what a place for the gospel to be proclaimed and Paul recognized that And like State College Corinth was full of a lot of wealthy and very intelligent people and like State College Corinth was full of a lot of moral depravity Paul wrote this letter three years after he spent a year and a half planting the church in Corinth and getting it off to a good start But it's important to understand what he writes about and why he writes about it, to understand that he had gotten several reports through different means of some serious problems in the church in Corinth. Some of the leaders in the church in Corinth were preaching and teaching heresy. Some leaders were challenging Paul's authority as an apostle, and we'll see in a minute why that was such a serious issue. There were divisions among the body there of believers, Divisions over who's the best leader or which leader they follow. Divisions over social class. They even had members taking other members to civil court to solve their issues and to to solve their disputes. And as we know from chapters 12 through 14, they were abusing and misusing the spiritual gifts and totally misunderstanding their purpose. And then we also know that there was sexual sin going on in that church. Not only was it being tolerated by the church, but it was causing offense in the eyes of the Corinthians, who were some of the most morally depraved people in the Roman Empire. And the Corinthians, the pagans, were offended by the sin that was being tolerated and not dealt with in that body of believers. And as we'll find out, their worship services were a mess, just a chaotic mess. So this is a church that had a lot of problems. And if there was any church that Paul planted and worked in that would bring to him a great deal of discouragement, this would have been the church. But isn't it surprising how Paul begins this letter to them? He says in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. I give thanks to my God always for you. You know, there's a danger when you read the introductory paragraphs to Paul's epistles. If, you, you know, if you're familiar with Paul's epistles, you know that they tend to have a bit of a form at the beginning, the sense of similar phrases and similar things he says. And there's, there's a danger in seeing those things as only formalities, as social niceties, that they're full of cliches and platitudes, and you kind of read through those quickly and skip over them to get to the real meat of Paul's letters. And if you do that, that's, that's really a shame because Paul never wrote anything lightly. He never wrote empty phrases. Everything he says in his introductions has a point and a purpose by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And as you dig into the initial verses in any epistle that Paul wrote, what you find out are some of the key issues that he identified in that church that he needed to address, and he's really setting the table for his teaching to come. And it's interesting that he begins this letter, which is a letter that's going to be full of exhortations and, and warnings and pointing out of sin, he starts the letter on such a positive note and he really talks about the riches of the true church, even the church in Corinth. In this introduction, he is addressing the church in Corinth and saying, you are very, very rich. Look at verse 4 and 5. He says, I give thanks to my God that in every way you were enriched in him. No matter how much we may look at that Corinthian church and say, wow, what a a needy church. Paul did not see them as needy. He saw them as rich in the things that matter. And what Paul says about the church in Corinth here, he says to every church in every age. Because every aspect of the riches that he points out that the church in Corinth had, this church has, and every true church of Jesus Christ has. And it's very important that we keep this perspective. You know, and we, there's a lesson here for us that when we look at other believers and when we look at other churches, we need to be like Paul. And we need to look at those individual Christians. We need to look at those churches first as God sees them. And then look at the problems. And that's what Paul does. He says, this is what God has done in you. This is what God has given to you. You are incredibly rich. You've probably noticed the last few months, we've been having, once a month, we've been having testimonies from members of the church. And these have been great, great encouragements to us. And we call them, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the bulletin, we call them evidences of grace. And that's a phrase that comes from a commitment that the leadership made about three years ago. I've mentioned this before. That we, when we come to our prayer time, when the elders and deacons get together and we pray for the church, we begin that prayer time by asking each other what evidences of grace do you see at oakwood what evidences of god's grace at work do you see and it's amazing that how you know you tend to when you start prayer time you tend to quickly jump to the problems the places where we need god to do something or to give something or to provide something starting by saying no what what has god given to his church what grace is at work in our midst Changes your whole perspective. And I'm hoping that these monthly testimonies of your members, of the members of the church, will do the same thing for this body as a whole. That we are looking first for the evidences of God's grace because it's everywhere around us. And so Paul begins to point to what riches he's talking about. Now, the Corinthians were rich people, a lot of them were, but not in the Corinthian church. Most of them were poor, as we'll find out. So he's not talking about riches in this life. And the very first riches, the very first aspect of riches he refers to is that he says that we are rich in the gospel. In the true church of Jesus Christ, we are rich in the gospel. In verse 2, this may not be obvious when you first read it, but look what he says in verse 2. He addresses them as the church of God that is in Corinth, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you know the language of scripture, you know that those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are the true believers. And it's speaking about the testimony of Christ. He says in verse 6 that they had believed and had been confirmed in them the testimony about Christ. And so what he's referring to there is the gospel. That's how you know the true church from the false church. Is do these people call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Now, you're going to say to me, there are a lot of false churches out there that that use the name of Jesus Christ everywhere. I'm talking about the biblical Christ, not the cultural Christ, not the trendy Christ, not the Christ of the popular movements. I'm talking about the Christ of Scripture. That's what Paul's talking about. Those who call upon the one eternal Son of God Revealed in God's word, those are the ones who are the true church. And so he's referring to the testimony about Christ, which is the gospel. The gospel is the testimony about who Jesus Christ is according to scripture and what has he done for us. That's the testimony about Christ. You can do everything wrong as a church, but if you proclaim the true Christ... The true gospel, you are rich in the gospel. It's that simple. In verse 1, that's why Paul, going back to verse 1, that's why he emphasizes his authority. Do you notice that? He says, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. That word apostle means one who is sent. And in the sense in which Paul is using it, it's talking about one who is sent by King Jesus. To officially represent him, he is the ambassador of the true risen king of the universe. And as an ambassador, he has been authorized to speak for King Jesus. His word is the word of Christ. He is Christ's spokesman. And so his testimony about Christ, which had established that church, is the truth. It is the gospel. And it's important, and we're going to see it through not just 1 Corinthians, but if you go on into 2 Corinthians, it's very important that he defend that he is an apostle, not because of his own reputation. It's not what he's protecting. He's protecting the integrity of the gospel because he was sent to reveal the gospel to sinners like you and me. And so when these false leaders were challenging his authority and causing people to doubt Paul's Authority and therefore to to doubt Paul's message, they were actually undermining the gospel itself. That's why he defended himself so strongly, why he begins this letter by making it clear that he was appointed by Christ to reveal the gospel. His call to be an apostle was unusual, that's for certain. He wasn't among the 12 who lived with Jesus during the three years of his public ministry on earth. But the qualifications to be apostle were to be a witness of the resurrected Christ and to be taught directly by Christ. That's the qualification to be apostle. And even though he didn't meet it the same way that the original 12 did, he met that criteria because he met the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus and saw him again after that. He was a witness of the resurrected Christ, and he was taught for three years, not during Christ's public ministry, but taught for three years in the wilderness by Christ himself. He says, I did not receive this gospel from men. He received it from Christ. And he became the definitive explainer of the gospel in the New Testament. Jesus didn't leave written teachings. He gave us the apostles so that we could have his word with full authority and accept it as though he spoke it himself. And if the authority of the apostles is doubted, then the gospel itself will be doubted. And that issue is still going on. That's how liberal scholars are still attacking the word of God. They don't, they, they, they don't attack Jesus directly, usually. They'll say, yeah, we liked what Jesus taught, but it was the apostles who distorted his word. It was the apostles who added to what he said. It's the apostles who mythologized Jesus and his teachings. And that is a lie straight out of the pits of hell. Because the apostles were given to explain who Jesus was, why he came, what he did, and how that has brought about God's promises of salvation to us. Satan will always whisper in the ears of the leaders of the church and say, has God really said? Has God really said? And they're still doing it today. That's why Paul defends his apostleship again and again and again, because the gospel is the greatest Treasure that the church has, and it is the source of every other treasure that God has given to his church. And so he goes on to talk about how we are rich in holiness. We have a very rich status in the universe. He says in verse 2 To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, or more literally, called to be holy. You know, we need to remember that description of the church in Corinth later. when he is chastising them for their sins of divisiveness and pride and sexual immorality. He says, you have been chosen by God and have been sanctified, set apart to belong to God, to be his people. You are sanctified, you are holy to God. You see, that sense of the word sanctification is not dependent on us at all. It's something that happens once. It's an, a- an action that is completed in the past but has implications for the rest of time. We have been set aside to belong to God. We are holy to him. It's kind of like adoption. When you're adopted, your status changes in a moment. And you go from not having any of the privileges of family to having all the privileges of the family. When you are converted to Christ, when actually before the foundation of the world is when it really happened, is when you are set apart to be holy to God. Your status changed and you became, went from being absolutely poor and with nothing to having the rights to all things in Christ's kingdom. That's what it means to be sanctified. That's what we call definitive sanctification. That's a theological term for it. It's an action that took place in the past when we were set apart to belong to God. It happened ultimately when Christ died in our place and was raised from the dead. We were set apart to belong to him at conversion, by faith, we are given Christ's perfect righteousness in a moment, so that from that moment on, it's always just as if we had always obeyed God, and just as if we had never disobeyed him, because we've been given the status, we've been sanctified, set apart to God. And then there's progressive sanctification. Once we've been set apart and holy, made holy and belong to God, he sends his spirit into our lives to transform us into the image of God that's progressive sanctification that's the work of the Holy Spirit we are called to be holy we are set apart we are sanctified by God and then called to be holy to become like him by God's grace so Paul rejoices in that he says you are holy to God that is such an incredibly privileged rich status And every church needs to understand that about itself. If it's a true church that preaches the gospel and lives by the gospel, you are set apart to God. You belong to him. You have that exalted status. And you have the spirit to make you live in a way that fulfills it. We need to see each other that way. You know, that would transform the way that we look at each other in the church if we understood that, that we are sanctified and being sanctified at the same time. We are set apart to be holy unto God and we are being made holy. That's why scripture says that we are to accept one another as God in Christ has first accepted us. He has accepted us by grace completely, not based on performance at all. But he is committed to changing our performance, to changing us from within by his spirit. So we accept one another unconditionally and yet we don't accept one another's sins. Because we love each other and we accept each other unconditionally. We encourage one another. We speak the truth and love to one another and we build one another up. What a rich status we have as being holy to God. Thirdly, Paul says we are rich in spiritual gifts. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says that the Corinthian Christians were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. That's quite a statement. And again, he's saying this to every true church that preaches the gospel and lives by the gospel. You are not lacking any spiritual gift. Now, he's not saying there that every true church has every possible spiritual gift. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you don't lack any spiritual gift to be and to do what God has called you to be and to do. You have every spiritual gift in your body of believers to do what God has called you to do. He has provided. You are rich in spiritual gifts. Now, Paul is later, in chapters 12 through 14, going to have a lot to say about how they misunderstood the spiritual gifts and how they abused those spiritual gifts, but here he's thanking God for the variety and the plentitude of the gifts that he had given to that church. He had given them everything they needed for their impact upon that dark community. It's interesting, he singles out speech and knowledge the, in the original Greek, it's logos and gnosis, very familiar words. And I think two reasons why he singles those out. First of all, because knowing the truth and proclaiming the truth is so central to what it means to be the church, to know the chur- chur- truth and to proclaim the truth. But I think he also singles those two out because those were the two that were really being misused and abused at Corinth. Because they were fascinated with the temporary miraculous gifts that were active during the days of the apostles. And so they were all caught up in speaking in tongues and word of knowledge in terms of, in terms of special revelation and prophetic utterances. They were so caught up in that that they were missing out on the true purpose of the gifts. And they were abusing them and misusing them. They became prideful things instead of being tools to use for the kingdom of God. But misuse and abuse of spiritual gifts doesn't negate Paul's thankfulness for the gifts being given. And so it is here. God has not withheld from Oakwood Presbyterian Church any spiritual gifts that we need to do what he has called us to do in State College in Center County. He's not withheld a single gift from us that we need to do what he's called us to do. You know, when we talked about the facility needs of our ministry, that we've outgrown our trellis. One of the things you've heard us say in the leadership quite a bit recently, although we've been saying it really for three or four years now, is that we believe that two 300-member churches will be more effective in bringing the impact of the kingdom of God on State College and Center County than one 600-member church most of the time. Or that three 300-member churches will have more impact for the kingdom of God than one 900-member church. Or four 300-member churches will have more impact than one... You get where I'm going. The, the, the idea being that you get to a certain point where... And I think this is one of the main reasons that we've been saying this. Now, again, it's not always true. There are some very large churches that are very impactful for the kingdom of God. And I don't want to take away from that. But I'm saying, in general, the, the, what happens in churches when they get to be five, six, seven hundred people is that the church begins to become kind of institutionalized and the ministry starts to be driven by and carried out more and more by staff people and in the largest churches what happens is too often, not always, but too often is that the general members of the church become very (laughs) passive and they become consumers of the ministry instead of producers of the ministry and they become spectators of what God is doing in that church and through that church instead of being using their spiritual gifts that God has given. And it's just true that smaller churches tend to rely more upon all the gifts of the body of believers in order to be effective. And it's a challenge to get all those gifts operating, but it's a good challenge. And it's a way to be a healthy church. Now again, I'm not speaking in absolute terms. This is more just for observation of the way things work. It doesn't have to be that way. But God has made us rich in spiritual gifts. And the more we put those spiritual gifts into operation in the ministry of the church, the healthier we are going to be. We are already rich. We don't need anything that we don't already have. That's the point that Paul is making to the Corinthian church. Fourth, Paul says, we are rich in hope. We are rich in hope. Look at verses the end of verse 7 through verse 9. He says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, we we are rich in hope, and we live in a culture that has no real hope. We live in a culture that bases its hope in eating, drinking, and being merry under the sun. And we've seen in the book of Ecclesiastes where that leads. It leads to vanity. It leads to emptiness. And that's where our culture is, generally speaking. We have the hope of the gospel. Again, every, every one of these riches goes back to the gospel. Because of the gospel, we have incredible hope. And we are the only ones who have it. We've cornered the market on hope in State College and Center County. Because God has given it to the true church. This true church and every true church where the gospel was preached and lived out. I have often said that the church today is suffering from post-Hal Lindsay, Tim LaHaye syndrome. That, if you don't know who those guys are, these, you know, the, the, what I'm saying is that in the last couple of generations, the church has had end times teaching given and proclaimed and especially put out there for the world to see that is wrong interpretation of scripture and is downright silly and ridiculous in many cases and what that has done and we're kind of in the backlash from that now and what i what i mean by backlash is that now we don't even want to talk about eschatology the bible what the bible teaches about end times we avoid the subject we're kind of ashamed of the subject or we figure it's just so unclear and divisive we don't want to get into it But Paul says the church is rich in hope, and that is our hope, that Jesus Christ is coming again. And we are to live for that hope, and that is really the hope of the gospel that we offer to a world that has no hope. You know, the second coming of Christ is a major theme of the New Testament. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. And here at Oakwood, one, another one of those phrases you'll hear us talk about is that we like to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And what we mean by that is that we are going to strive to be faithful to every teaching in the whole council of God's word, but we're going to be careful that when people hear our teaching, we're going to major on the majors and minor on the minors. In other words, the things that scriptures emphasize over and over, we want to emphasize over and over in our ministry And that realizing that there are some secondary issues that aren't as clear, that Christians disagree on, that are secondary, important, but secondary to those essentials. And that we're going to be about majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. Well, in light of that, just let me give you one statistic. i give you a hundred of them, but let me give you one statistic. The New Testament mentions baptism 20 times. It mentions the second coming of Christ 300 times. We are rich in the hope of the gospel, which is all about the fact that this crucified Christ has risen from the dead, he has ascended to the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, and he is coming back one day to bring our salvation to completion and to restore all of creation, all the universe, to the perfection it was intended to be in the beginning. We are to live daily in that hope, That is our treasure. Christ is our treasure. We abide in him now and one day we will see him face to face and we are to live in that hope every day. And that's what the world needs to hear. That is why the gospel makes us rich. So let me ask the question. What does Oakwood Presbyterian Church need in order to become the church God wants us to be and to accomplish the mission that he has placed us here to do? What do we need to do that? I hope you'll hear what Paul is saying here. Nothing. We need nothing beyond what he's already given. We have it in Christ as a gift of grace. We don't need anyone to give us $1.6 billion. Matter of fact, I am pretty sure that if somebody did that, it would actually be to the detriment of our church. I've seen big financial gifts do in a lot of ministries. That's not our hope. We don't need more money. We need only what God has already given us in Christ. We are rich in the gospel. So long as the gospel, the testimony about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done is the center of what we proclaim and teach and is the center of how we treat one another. We are rich in the gospel. We are rich in holiness. We have the exalted status of being God's people, holy to him, and he is transforming us to fit that image. We are rich in the gifts of the Spirit. We have every spiritual gift we need to do the ministry he's called us to do. And if he sends more spiritual gifts to us, it's only because he's expanding ministry in the future that he's calling us to do. But what we need today we have. And if all those things are true, we are rich in the hope of eternal fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Those are dramatic statements that Paul makes about every true church the church in Corinth and the church in State College. How could he be so sure? You know, that's the beauty of this whole thing. He adds a guarantee to all of this. Did you notice where the guarantee is? It's in verse 9. God is faithful there's the guarantee that's how we know all this is true because God is faithful that's the covenant theme that ties all of scripture together God has made promises to us and he is faithful he's never broken a promise and he's not going to start now he will fulfill every promise he's made to us in Christ that kind of confidence led Paul to say to the Philippian church I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it led him to stay to the Thessalonian church. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Let's pray. Father. Forgive us for crying poverty so much of the time. Forgive us for focusing on gifts that you haven't given to us instead of being content and putting to work the gifts that you've already given. Thank you for our riches in the gospel, the riches of sanctification, the riches of spiritual gifts, the riches of hope. These are all ours because Christ has died for us and has risen from the dead and reigns on high as Lord of all. We call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we receive these blessings as an act of grace and are filled with love and thankfulness for what you've given. We pray in Christ's name, amen.